Chris O'Connor here. Join our fabulous curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now, let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. This episode will continue our second Golden Age of Rock series, the era that spans from the mid-1960s through the early 1970s, and it will set its ever-loving gaze on the year 1966. This is the year that the recreational use of LSD among artists, musicians, and others in hip bohemian circles something that had been going on for several years now, finally starts to show its overt influence on popular music itself, rather than just lyrically, as Bob Dylan had been doing the past couple of years, the previous couple of years, I should say. This would have a seismic impact on rock music and popular music as a whole, an effect whose ripples are still being felt today in the 21st century as psychedelic tones and sounds are still being explored in indie rock, hip-hop, R&B, soul, electronica, and even jazz. But at the time, in the mid-1960s, it was an era and generation-defining development. It was more than a development, more like a movement that opened doors for new and upcoming artists to be as bold and experimental as they wanted to be. It also provided a creative kick in the ass for established artists to not just catch up with the times, but to look inside and challenge themselves with newer and fresher methods of expression. All this said, 1966 was a year that three artists in particular stood out from the rest of the pack and by some considerable margin. The Beach Boys, Bob Dylan, and The Beatles. Earlier in the decade, Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys' mastermind composer and producer, had created a brand of sublime surf pop by merging rock and roll with doo-wop vocal harmonies. By the middle of the decade, Wilson was creating a new sound of sublime orchestral pop. While his drug use and mental health issues would eventually get the best of him in later years, during this early period in his life, it's difficult to argue that what he crafted in the enduring Immortal Pet Sounds album wasn't psychedelically inspired. Bob Dylan's experimentation with LSD inspired him to take music lyricism to another level of symbolic and expressionistic artistry while undergoing the then unthinkable act of 
basically merging the melodic and lyrical sweep of folk music with the visceral power and the cathartic energy of rock and roll. In 1966, he would take this potent combination to its logical conclusion with the epic, surrealist masterpiece Blonde on Blonde. And then, of course, there are the Beatles. Very little can be said about the greatest and most important band of the 20th century that hasn't already been said. Needless to say, the quantum leap they made the previous year in lyrical and musical sophistication with the albums Help and Rubber Soul was outdone by another quantum leap in 1966 with the kaleidoscopic and immensely influential psychedelic pop masterpiece Revolver. We'll also check in on other all-time classic albums that were part of the psychedelic 60s vanguard, as well as individual singles by bands and artists that defined this unbelievably fertile period in rock history in this installment of the Curmudgeon Rock Report, The Second Golden Age of Rock, 1966. So, Arturo, I think you had it about right. Uh, this uh, discussion of 1966 really is a discussion or a tale of three albums. Uh, Lysergics or not, regardless of the Lysergics, uh, this uh, year is definitely defined by the three albums that we'll talk about. And everything else that follows from it uh, really has its influence, even seeping into uh, the black music a little bit, yeah. as, we'll, as we'll talk about. Yeah. I mean, like I said, uh, this is generally the theme here is psychedelia. And these three albums were very psychedelic in their own way. Uh, like I mentioned earlier with Dylan, it was in the lyrics with the with the Beach Boys pet sounds. It was in the overall sound and the feel of the record. I mean, this was really like this wasn't his Brian Wilson's first post acid album, but it was his first acid acid album in a lot of yeah. ways. And uh, Revolver is like very much the Beatles almost at their psychedelic peak. Yeah, almost. Uh, but but well, it, it depends. I mean, you know, some people it's like tomato and tomato between Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's. Right. And uh, uh, sneak peek. Would, I, I think we'll Sgt. Pepper's might show up in the discussion in 1967. I don't know. Maybe. Do you think? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that it, it, it's possibly a good bet. Now the 16th best album uh, ever made, according to Rolling Stone, after being number one for years and years and years and years. Right. So, right. hey, go figure. Uh, so anyway, how you doing otherwise, bro? Good, man. Good. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Our second Golden Age series. We're trudging on. And uh, yeah, we're in the meat and potatoes of it. Yeah, ab yeah, absolutely. You know, this is this is the meat, the potatoes. This is the corn. This is the gravy. Uh, this is all of the trimmings. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, you know Thanksgiving coming up, uh, we might as well start wetting up uh, people's appetites and uh, make this the soundtrack to your family dinner. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, e e even if you're a middle aged man, you can still piss off your parents. You know. Yeah. So just, just just play songs inspired by drugs. Yeah, ab absolutely. You know where uh, uh, people still piss off their parents and don't actually go to the same concerts as them, don't you? Gee, where is that? That would be a place known as the Parallel Universe. Uh, here uh, over in this time of the space-time continuum, uh, rock and roll is still dangerous. Uh, it still is uh, 
the thing that is uh, on the cultural zeitgeist. It's the thing that still separates us from our earlier generations. Uh, none of this moms, grandmas, and, and, and daughters and daughters' daughters going to Taylor Swift concerts. Uh, <laughs> you know, we are not multi-generational over here. We are now, we are here, we are present, and we are all about what's immediate. And this, this, and, and basically a, a shorthand way of saying that we cover albums from artists who we think are really neato and that you should uh, know about. And we're just, uh, we're being your fact-checking cause here. Uh, and so, uh, Arturo, uh, who are you uh, covering on this episode's version of the Parallel yes. Universe? Say She She is the name of the band and their new album, their second album called Silver. Now, Say She She are a seven-piece band fronted by a female trio from Brooklyn, New York, that basically takes mid to late 1970s R&B, soul, and disco, and uh, they give them a modernist indie boost. Well, one of them is from New York. The other two are from Washington, D.C. and and London, England. Anyway, their debut album from last year, Prism, frankly, wasn't very good. It was way too soft, poppy and mellow and drenched in vocal harmonies by a group of women who honestly weren't quite good enough singers yet. It sounded exactly like what it was. An album made by a group of trust-funded rich girls living in a Brooklyn loft who are too satisfied with their Gen Z wonderfulness. However, (laughs) their new album, Silver, however, is a marked improvement. They've stretched themselves out to incorporate and actually sound like a real band. And the songwriting is much tighter. The grooves are more muscular and the hooks and melodies are much stronger and more memorable. While I am a vigorous proponent of double albums, this is one of those double albums that has an excellent single album somewhere in there, and most of it is on the second disc. Seriously, while listening, it feels like they completely morphed into a different band while in the process of making Mm. the record. The first disc contains too much of the soft, poppy, fluffy, mellow R&B that is way too much in vogue these days, with a few exceptions. C'est si bon, however, the French, you know, C apostrophe E-S-T, S-I-C, bon, B-O-N, is an irresistible, delectable slice of decadent disco that makes you want to reach for a few grams of cocaine, a mirror, and a razor blade. I swear. Entry level is low-down, dirty funk, and questions is the kind of sleepy, uh, sleek, social commentary pop funk that would make Prince proud. The second disc is where this album really takes off, though. Never Say Never has a sprightly bounce that recalls early 1980s talking heads, while the subtle psychedelic soul of uh, Echo in the Chamber recalls Shuggy Otis. That's a reference for you. (laughs) Norma. Norma is a pure disco floor burner a la 1978. And the album ends with the title track, Silver, a lovely mid-tempo space funk that stretches out to nine minutes. And those mediocre vocal harmonies I mentioned earlier from their first album, it appears a whole year of touring and gigging have helped the ladies and say she, she improve in that area. It's an overall solid three and a half star album that proves the sum can be better than its parts. Chris. Uh, no doubt. Uh, no doubt. Uh, it's, uh, 
a really uh, interesting uh, exercise. Uh, it's much more sensual than most of the stuff that you get these days. I, you know, just on first listen, I like what I hear. Yeah. Uh, right. From what I understand and from what I've uh, read about this record, they actually did record it on analog equipment. And so mm. not only are they going for disco reverence, they're actually recording in that in that style. You know, yeah, so they want that sound. Yeah. Yeah. They want that 1978 thing and uh, they pretty much get it. Uh, you know, they've they practically steal a few bass lines from Chic. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a couple of things on the second disc where Donna Summer is clearly an influence. Right. Uh, and so. Uh, and I, I too, I'm a big fan of uh, Shea Shibon, and you must have uh, uh, read my notes because I refer to it as cocaine lounge music of the highest order. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, this is you know, you and I are, are former New Yorkers, or we used to live in mm. New York. Uh, how yeah. many of those black shirt uh, people hanging out uh, after uh, having coke and just like you know, drinking on their fine cocktails bars did we try to hang out in? <laughs> a bunch when we were still finding ourselves in the city <laughs> yeah new, new, newsflash we did not fit in uh, so but but we but we tried we we tried uh so yeah and from what you said and and you know i have i'm not familiar with the the first disc honestly it, it doesn't sound like i want to be but mm -hmm. you know if from what you've said that is quite a leap from one year uh to the next to get yeah. this to capture that kind of uh, sophistication. And they're not just doing karaoke. I think that they actually uh, do sure, have some yeah. chops. I mean, there's some interesting yeah. stuff going on. It's uh, yeah, the, the band they have behind them is really improved. They've improved as singers. Yeah. They have, they have their as, own tempo writers. Yeah. So, yeah. so hope, hopefully their next album will be better, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And in the meantime, keep banging the Shea Shibon. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> the thing that goes, that goes there. So uh, we've come to, I mean, I guess it happens every, what, three or four months where I get to uh, take out my badge <laughs> and refer to myself officially as a King Gizzardologist. Yeah. And uh, here we have the latest and truly not greatest uh, <laughs> release from King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, uh, Australia's favorite uh, jam band slash chameleon uh, of of rock and and all forms that you can think of uh this album is called the silver chord and i gotta say it's probably my least favorite or second least favorite of the king gizzard records that we've covered during the life of this podcast mm. uh, i would advise folks to listen to this album once for the amusement uh, of what these guys are trying to do here and then move on uh specifically we find Stu McKenzie and his bandmates attempting Motorique and also uh, other German and disco uh, influenced uh, sounds. So basically think like late 70s industrial ish uh, stuff. Uh, there's been interviews where Stu McKenzie says that uh, Giorgio Moroder's stuff from the mid to late 70s is an influence, which uh, that's news to any of anybody who's heard the record and has actually heard Moroder, too. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know where the hell they they got that because it's not there. But basically, it's 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 these guys trying their best to ape the Germans. Uh, it just basically it's a really lazy. From what I can bet, it's just like, hey man, why don't we try doing an electro record about more dragons and shit? You know, let's uh, you know, <laughs> we, you know, earlier in the record we did uh, the, earlier in the year in 2023 we did this album called Petro Dragonic Apocalypse where we thrash metaled our way through it about uh, about a demon lizard that's born from the sludge 
of how climate change and a big ass tornado ruins the world. Uh, <laughs> well, similarly, uh, I'm not it's not nearly as interesting here, but there's there's more, you know, there's more ghouls and goblins. And uh, it just adds up to a really boring, sloppy, ridiculous mess. Uh, yeah. you know, and so they probably should have just done this as another thrash album and mm. called, uh, you know, maybe Petra Gorgonic Apocalypse Part Two. I mean, I any album just made it a, might as well do something they haven't done before because they already did electro cheesy electro soul with Butterfly 3000. Just go ahead and do yeah. a bluegrass album. I mean, for- I mean, this is this is different, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> King is doing bluegrass. Uh, this isn't quite. I mean, I like Butterfly Three Thousand because I thought as as a dream pop record about becoming a father for the first time, it was pretty good. Uh, this one is not dream pop. Uh, it doesn't count as disco. It doesn't count as motorique uh, from the Germans. It just is just like, hey, why, why don't we just use uh, old old school keyboards and just you know sound you know sound like we belong somewhere in a disco or have like one leg in a disco. And like the others in a MOR 80s radio station, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, I'll, I'll make a comparison here. The only album that may be worse than this one uh, of, of the ones I've covered. Now, now, keep in mind, this band has released 11 albums. Uh, and, well, if you include the EP and, and live record, uh, they've released 11 in the life of this podcast, which goes back to January, 2021. Now this is the seventh of these I've covered here in the parallel universe. Mm. Now, the only one that may be worse than the silver cord is last year's Omnium Gatherum, uh, which really was an unfocused mess and played like, you know, like odds and sods and leftovers from several of the other records. It just, it was, it was really ridiculous. Uh, But no one can really say the silver cord was a mess. I mean, it's definitely done on purpose and is consistent with the band's MO of wearing three or four musical suits a year just for the hell of it. Uh, The problem is that the output is just shitty. Uh, And so, you know, the songs are weak. The terrible rapping from Omnium Gatherum reappears. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they they really should put like a moratorium on hip hop. Yeah. not a genre King Gizzard should get involved in. Yeah, I know. At least on Omnium, they were trying to ape Prince. Here, it's just, I don't know what the hell they're doing. They're just like, it's its just slop. So, yeah. uh, and so I will say this, though. Uh, I do wonder how the utterly moronic Gilgamesh would sound as speed metal. Uh, that, <laughs> that, that might be a cool ass listen. Uh, still, it might still be a bad song, but it'll at least be a cool listen. Yeah. Uh, anyway. I have done the hard work of listening and analyzing the silver cord. So you do not have to uh, hear it on a drive to work and then do not pass go or collect 200 bucks. And that's that. Arturo. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that makes King Gizzard such a special endearing band is their adventurousness and how willing they are to really go out on a limb and experiment and try new and different things. But here's the thing that even the most ardent King Gizzard fans and fans of any band or artist have to realize. Just because an artist experiments and does something new and different, it doesn't mean it's automatically good. Okay, Um, uh, uh, Experiments can fail. They're not always good. Let's stop being fanboys of all these bands. Oh, they're they're, they're trying something good. Let's give them an award. Let's give them an A for effort. Fuck that. We're not in the business of giving A for effort. Give us good results. And 
this is the conundrum that King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard find themselves in. Yes, going all over the place is what we love about them. But if we're going to praise them when their experiments work, we should equally be honest when those experiments don't work. Two years ago, they put out an album that you mentioned, Chris, Butterfly 3000, which was their first foray into full-on electronica. You like it more than I do. I think the result was a sloppy mess of cheesy, corny, lightweight electro soul that amounted to nothing more than third-rate craft work without the pop songwriting chops. This album is mostly more of the same, but there are at least a two or a couple of good tracks that keep it from being complete shit. Why is that? Because as their underrated album from last year, Made in Timeland, shows, King Gizzard's forays into electronica work best when they delve into hard-driving, heavy techno aimed at the dance floor. Why is that? Because at their core, King Gizzard are a rock band. Yep. If they're going electronic, break out those fucking block rocking beats, yo. Yeah. <laughs> they, they only they only do that on two tracks here. Uh set and swan song. When they go when they go full on techno is the only time when they're convincing when when they're doing electronica. Check out those two tracks and disregard the rest of the album. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Well, like we mentioned earlier, the overall arching theme of this particular episode of 1966 of the Second Golden Age of Rock series is psychedelia. And this is this is the year where psychedelia and psychedelic rock entered the mainstream. We'll talk about albums and especially singles where just lysergic music became a thing that mainstream rock audiences embraced. But like we also mentioned earlier in this episode, there are three particular bands slash artists that stood above everyone else with arguably three of the 20 greatest albums ever made and among their best work. And the first band we're going to start with is an artist who for whom I I would say LSD and other drugs really, really, really opened his particular mind and expanded his musical boundaries and ended up in some of the greatest popular music ever made. But it didn't last long because he kind of went out of his mind later. (laughs) But, But for a little while, he made arguably the greatest album of all time. Chris? Correct. Uh, we're talking about the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. Uh, you know, Wilson is a is a fascinating uh, case study when uh, mental illness, emotional sensitivity, 
and way too many drugs uh, intersect. Yeah. And uh, well, not only that, but also, you know, give a guy who's already made millions of dollars and has those introverse uh, tendencies, uh, give him the keys to the studio and any studio musicians he wants to uh, that, you know, that have the talent to kind of bring his crazy and sort of deep and and genius level uh, musical ideas to life. And right. that's pretty much what you get. So uh, let's talk about the Beach Boys and their album Pet Sounds. I'm pretty sure you've heard of it. Uh, the Beach Boys resident genius Brian Wilson uh, suffered a nervous breakdown near the end of 1964. He just wasn't made for his times. So the rest of the Beach Boys stayed on the road, keeping the endless summer alive and on brand. Meanwhile, Wilson set up shop in the studio away from his bandmates and abusive father and manager Murray, while also beginning an ill-fated experimentation with drugs and not just LSD. Uh, Wilson brought in studio aces, including guitarist Glenn Campbell, yes, that Glenn Campbell, bassist Carol Kay, and drummer Hal Blaine to help him translate an increasingly ambitious musical vision. The rest of the Beach Boys came in off the road to assemble majestic, glorious five-part harmonies and pet sounds, perhaps rock's greatest album. Seriously, uh, go look at lots of charts. Most charts, it's either number one or number two, was born. Now, Brian Wilson once told Rolling Stone uh, back in the late 80s, quote, being called a musical genius was a cross to bear. Genius is a big word, but if you have to live up to something, you might as well live up to that, end quote. And he certainly did here. Uh, Wilson's bandmate, the marvelous singer and world-renowned asshole Mike Love, (laughs) yeah, yeah, famously referred to the songs on Pet Sounds as ego music. But in a way, that's actually an apt description of the album in the best I, sense. I think he, I think, I think he referred to uh, "Smile" as ego music. Not no, so much no, no. He he referred to this as ego music uh, really? as well. Okay. Yeah, that okay. this is where the ego music thing started. Yeah. Uh, in a way, like I said, it's actually an apt description of the album in the best sense of that term, rather than the worst. So, in a way, love. You know, hey, he was complimentary. Uh, Wilson set out to make a pop music symphony that captured his feelings of loneliness alienation, romantic longing, and heartbreak. To help him do so, he brought in a guy named Tony Asher, an advertising professional, to craft the lyrics. From the collective brains of Wilson and Asher came warm yet haunted classics such as Wouldn't It Be Nice, You Still Believe in Me, God Only Knows, and I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. In another interview, circa 2000, Wilson said, I think because I felt so sad, I had to bring out all my feelings and try to create music that would meet, that would make me and all my friends feel better. Uh, as a result, uh, this album, Pet Sounds, is unfathomably gorgeous, with melodies and harmonies that evoke a spirituality that no one else in the history of rock has ever approached. To turn another Mike com- Love complaint on its head, Wilson really did have something approximating dog ears. I mean, it was really a funny comment by Love, considering that his best lead vocals uh, in the entire Beach Boys catalog are on Pet Sounds. Yeah. Regardless, even the accidents on Pet Sounds uh, somehow make sense. Check out the bicycle horn near the end of uh, You Still Believe in Me, which is my personal favorite song on Pet Sounds. Uh, the basic track was recorded with a different, more impish lyrical concept in mind. And yet that horn, you know, kind of a double, you know, beep, beep, which, uh, you know, Wilson left in the final results somehow adds texture and an odd teardrop to the song's lovely chime and organ laden Baroque coda. 
which follows a really stunningly mature expression of devotion to the woman who puts up with him. Uh, Also check out the wonderful old Caribbean folk song called Sloop John B, which we spoke about at length on our episode counting down the 30 top rock covers of all time. Miraculously, the Beach Boys singers infused the same innocence they supplied to the band's early odes to surfing cars and girls into this bitchy, ironically jolly tale of an ill-fated sea voyage. It's a neat trick in an album full of them. Pet Sounds is one of those albums that's kind of like the movie Citizen Kane, where absorbing its true greatness in one sitting is virtually impossible. Uh, Even as I listen to this album for possibly the 300th or 301st uh, full sitting to prepare for this episode, I was struck for the first time by how the strings underneath the bridge harmonies on God Only Knows add even more beauty and depth to those vocals than I had previously realized. Uh, Wilson made a masterpiece here, and he knew it. His attempt to top himself, the next year's smile, devolved into drugged out messiness bordering on lunacy, including... Well, it it never came out. (laughs) Yeah, and it never came out. For the sake of sanity and order, the band rightfully abandoned the album's production, and they left uh, Wilson to play piano in a sandbox that he had inserted in his living room. Yes, that's true. Go look it up, folks. Uh, And yet, Wilson damn near did top himself on that record. Uh, yeah. that that's the saddest part of the towering accomplishment of pet sounds. Uh, Wilson had higher and more pristine places. He could have gone had his mind, uh, not, uh, completely melted down. Uh, as it is, pet sounds is the elegiac expression of a man at the end of his emotional rope. Uh, one that perhaps, uh, has influenced all pop music that has come after it. It can even be argued that without pet sounds, classical volleys and warm tones, the Beatles' Sgt. Peppers may have lost some of its own classical music charm. Sure. This is one of rock's greatest gifts, one that will never stop giving. Arturo. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wonder, he he co-wrote most of these tracks with this guy, Tony Asher. I wonder how much acid and pot they did together because Asher really wrote the lyrics, but he really, really got into Brian Wilson's head. Oh, yeah. Um, because what, well, these words, these lyrics, a lot of them have to do with breakups. It starts with the beginning of a relationship. It ends with the end of a relationship yep. and all things in between, in particular, coming of age and realizing that the world isn't a very good place. Right. And it makes it, it very, very emotional, very personal, emotional words without being sentimental. And that's a trick yeah. a lot of songwriters really aren't good at. No, they not can't at all. Really do that, you know, be emotional without being sentimental. Those are two different things. Yeah. I also think any discussion of Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys in 1966 and this year has to mention the single Good Vibrations. Oh, absolutely. This was, this was released in the fall of 66. This was recorded during the Smile sessions. Brian Wilson was multitasking like a motherfucker during this time. He he was con- conceiving, producing, arranging, even in some a lot of cases performing, getting session musicians together to do the stuff that would become Smile. Plucked from these sessions, he also on the side formulated a single called Good Vibrations because Pet Sounds didn't sell that well. It only went as uh, far as, I think, number 10 on the Billboard pop charts, even though it was yeah. huge in the U- it was huge in the UK. And uh, he needed, well, he, he really felt the pressure to come out with, with a big pop single because 
Pet Sounds it and produced that pop single. So with good vibrations, he put out what he described many times and has been quoted many times as saying a pocket symphony. Basically, it's it's like it's it's not quite it's progressive pop in the purest yeah. sense. It's not even progressive rock. It's like progressive pop. Yeah, and it, it's a multi-section suite that goes that breathtakingly goes from one movement to another without ever ever abandoning the listener's ear with uh maintaining uh the attention of the listener with those beautiful harmonies with just these 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 just lush arrangements that just lead to this amazing you know the theremin the famous theremin yeah is the bust out the theremin song. baby you know, yeah, but um, yeah, you have to talk about good vibrations. One of the single greatest singles of all time. That was a massive hit, worldwide hit when it came out. So it gave Brian Wilson some leeway and a buffer to continue working on Smile. Yeah, like, okay, all right, Brian, you got a big hit with you have this critically acclaimed masterpiece with Pet Sounds. Now you have this critically acclaimed and commercial huge hit with Good Vibrations. All right, go ahead and do um, Smile. Well. What happened? The band members, all of them hated it. Yep. <laughs> um, I mean, throughout the years, people have said Carl Wilson said, no, I was OK with it. Dennis Wilson said he supported it. Bullshit. None of them liked it. The, the, the reaction among the band was split with pet sounds and wasn't split with the smile results. Wilson was taking too many drugs. He was having his mental health issues were getting the best of him at this time. And the drugs were exacerbating that whole issue. Yeah. And what happened is that he just had a, another uh, nervous psychological breakdown and just basically fell into a depression that would last for a really long time. About eight years. Yeah. Even more than that. Cause then, then he would, yeah. And then in eight years later, it would bring that shrink who came to, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, Eugene, that, that, Eugene Landy, who saved his life at first, but then just completely dominated yeah. and manipulated him in a way, yeah, financially, him. emotionally, psychologically, that kind of almost ruined him. But that's another yeah. story. That's yeah, that, story. that that certainly is another story. And yeah, Good Vibrations is the one uh, positive output from Smile that hit the street and uh, kind of justified it, it. If without Good Vibrations, you probably don't get the cult of Smile. And there yeah. really is a cult of smile that, you know, the there way is. that he pulled off. I mean, Good Vibrations is definitely the best thing to come out of that. But there's some other stuff on there, like Heroes and uh, Villains. Amazing and, stuff that came yeah. from the smile sessions. Yeah, vegetables. It could have been a like fantastic that. record had Brian Wilson had someone with him to help him edit. He didn't have yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, especially not Van Dyke Parks. I mean, both of those guys were whacked out of their minds at that point. So, yeah, uh, it's too bad. Uh, and so now we moved on from guys who were whacked out of their minds to uh, a guy who had uh, whacked uh, out even more on his mind. Yeah, well, well, there's that. But also but he was so whacked out that he was fully in control. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're talking yeah. about uh, the maestro and, uh, you know, the Superman uh, of, of all songwriters, Bob Dylan. Uh, Arturo, yes. t tell us about Bond on Bond. The Shakespeare of rock. Yeah, Bob Dylan is so etched in stone as this living, breathing, walking, barely walking at this point, monument to music that it's hard for people to realize that at some point in time, a long time ago, Dylan was actually at the zenith and peak of what was hip in the pop cultural zeitgeist. This was early 1966, and Dylan was riding such a wave 
combined with the huge commercial success of the previous year, which saw both his album, Highway 61 Revisited, and two timeless classic singles, Like a Rolling Stone and Positively 4th Street, hit the top 10 in both the Billboard album and singles charts, respectively. This was also the time when Dylan had fully crossed over to the electric rock and roll and pop sphere, angering folk purists who wanted to see Dylan remain a politically conscious folk singer, continually writing politically minded folk songs for just voice and acoustic guitar. Basically, they wanted him to be Phil Oaks. <laughs> no, <laughs> Dylan wasn't having that. And not only did his decision open up his appeal to a brighter audience, it made his music more enduring and shall we say, more time-proof as the decades would slide by. So, the time came to record the follow-up to Highway 61 Revisited. From October 1965 through January of 1966, Dylan did numerous recording sessions with producer Bob Johnston that spanned both studios in both New York and Los Angeles. It spurned two studios, and he still couldn't get it right. The band he was using for these sessions uh, was his touring band at the time, known as the Hawks, who would in a couple of years' time be widely known as The Band. Rest in peace, Robbie Robertson. The sessions did not go well. Dylan was not satisfied with anything they were doing except for one song, One of Us Must Know, which was released as a single in February and flopped, <laughs> reaching only 119 on the Billboard singles chart. It's too bad because it's a gorgeous song, detailing a romantic breakup amidst a backdrop that can be described as dark, gothic, carnivalesque with its loping organ and cyclical structure. It was kept on the album that would eventually became Blonde on Blonde. John, Bob Johnston, the producer who lived in Nashville, Tennessee at the time, suggested that Dylan should record there with the highly acclaimed crew of session musicians that played on hundreds of country music records at the time. Dylan agreed, and the only music musicians he brought with him from the New York and L.A. sessions were guitarist Robbie Robertson and keyboardist Al Cooper. This time, the results were the 180-degree opposite of what came from the previous sessions. In a roughly one-month period from mid-February to mid-March, Dylan and the Nashville crew nailed down all the songs that would be on the record. Dylan and everyone else was so satisfied with the music that it was, de it was decided to be released as a double album. Now, double LPs had been released before, but they were usually in the realm of classical music or film scores. Blonde on Blonde was essentially the first album in the realm of contemporary popular music to be a double album, yet another way in which Bob Dylan was a pioneer and trailblazer. All this history wouldn't matter, though, if the music on this album wasn't among the most masterful and well-crafted, not just of Dylan's career, but in the entire canon of rock and roll. First off, this is the first Dylan album that is actually produced. When I say that, I mean it has its own distinctive production sound. His early folk records were exactly that. Folk records, just voice, acoustic guitar, harmonica, stick Dylan in front of a microphone and press record. When he ventured into rock and roll on bringing it all back home in early 1965, it was raw. It was a raw garage rock sound. 
With Highway 61 Revisited from the same year, it was a heavier, denser, more expansive rock sound, but it was still raw and didn't sound sonically out of place for much of the pop music at the time. Blonde on Blonde, however, was a different beast. Dylan has been famously quoted many times regarding his description of the album as having that quote-unquote, wild, thin, mercury sound. And he's exactly right. There's an overall shiny sheen to the record. The guitars have a sparkle that snaps at the listener. The drums have a crispness to them that focus on the snare. And then there are the songs. This is the absolute apex of Dylan's Dadaist, surrealist phase of song lyricism. Even the songs that are most obtuse or even abstract are fascinating in their vivid, striking, and sometimes even haunting imagery. Visions of Johanna may well be one of the most beautiful and moving songs in Dylan's entire catalog with its gorgeous, roving melody writing a story of a doomed love triangle. Rainy Day, number 12 and 35, and most likely You Go Your Way and I'll Go Mine, are the opening tracks on each of the discs, and both are the quote-unquote joke songs on the record, each of them driven by a marching band horn section. The former is one of the most notorious songs on the album, not just for said marching band sounding drunk, but for its drug references in the chorus. When Dylan sings Everybody Must Get Stoned, he's actually referring to the act of stoning, a public shaming ritual yeah. dating back to biblical times when people would throw stones at someone who committed a criminal offense. But come on, Dylan knew what he was doing when he put Everybody Must Get Stoned in oh, the yeah. chorus. <laughs> Believe it or not, this song went all the way to number two on the Billboard Pop Singles chart. There's also the galloping, jaunty beauty of I Want You, one of the most unabashed love songs in Dylan's repertoire, rendered in one of the most thickly metaphorical set of lyrics the man ever penned. This made it to number 20 on the Billboard singles chart. Then there's also the mournful, sweepingly gorgeous Just Like a Woman, Dylan's aching send-off to Andy Warhol socialite Edie Sedgwick, a woman he had a brief affair with. This track, with its harmonica melody on loan from God, hit yep. number 33 on the Billboard singles chart. And most of those songs are just from the first disc. The second disc is equally loaded with songs most artists, artists would pimp their mothers to have written. Dylan goes surf rock with Absolutely Sweet Marie. He responds to the Beatles' Norwegian Wood with the waltz time beauty of Fourth Time Around. And he just about rips the listener's heart out with his moving, elegiac tribute to his at-the-time new wife, Sarah, with Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. The theme of this episode is psychedelia, like we said before. And while there's nothing musically psychedelic about Blonde on Blonde, Dylan absolutely gets there with his lyrics, which can put you in a lysergic mood without any drugs whatsoever. There seems to be a notion among also uh, you know, the pretent pretentious indie hipster douchebag set of fans and critics that most double albums are bloated and indulgent and should be single albums. Not only is that a steaming pile of horse shit, in fact, it's one of the curmudgeonly tenets that most yeah. double albums are either among an artist's best work or it is their best work. Yeah. 
It's a criminal insult to one of Dylan's top three very best albums, in my opinion, a record that doesn't have a single wasted note. But you disagree. Hey, Chris. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do think that uh, I, I like I, obviously this album's awesome. It's five stars. It's probably belongs in the top 50 uh, albums just objectively of all time. Uh, but I do think that it does suffer from being a little too long and a little too indulgent. Uh, I think that, you know, obviously he figured out the uh, the benefits of of real production and probably enjoyed being able to uh, be at the mercy of of those Nashville session pros plus Robbie Robertson. Yeah. Uh, but it could have done without fourth time around, which, like you said, is kind of a joking response to uh, Norwegian Wood. It's a beautiful song. It's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's that. I mean, I want you, which which is OK, but it's a ditty. And so maybe you could have yeah. done uh, without it's that. A, it's the pop ditty that the album needed. <laughs> yeah. And but what I'm saying, it's uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, obviously the cornerstones of the record are Visions of Johanna and Sad Eyed Lady is Lowland. Uh, both of those songs are incredible. Uh, the, the lyrics, the uh, uh, the chorus, uh, you know, the melody, uh, everything. Those are just a couple of perfect songs. I've also uh, been a, always been a fan of the blues stuff on there. Uh, Pledge, uh, yeah. Pledging My Time and uh, Leopard yeah. Skin Pillbox Hat. Uh, I think you know where I'm going. I think the first disc is better than the second disc. I think that uh, there's, uh, it's just, it just was a little too long. And I think that that had he tightened it up, you know, remove just like three or four songs and make it, you know, and make it into a longer single record, uh, it would have uh, benefited and it would have been just about as perfect as Highway 61 Revisited. And uh, for that matter, I've always you said that this was the first really produced record in Dylan's catalog. I think that uh, that's one of the reasons I also prefer Highway 61 Revisited is that lack of production. It's just that these guys bashing out in the studio over a course of yeah. uh, six sessions. I mean, yeah, that, you know, that, that, that's great, too. I mean, I, I'm not I don't think it's fair to compare the two albums. I mean, they're, yeah, they're not really. They, yeah, they come from sounding. Two, beasts. Yeah. yeah. They come from two different places. I understand that, and and I think that uh, in some ways, uh, Highway sixty one is 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 more. It's not as ambitious lyrically, but I think it's more. Uh, it's more honest in, in in some respects. I don't know. I just there's just, uh, and I guess that that's one of the things too is that, you know, blind on blind. After a while, because it's too long, uh, th there are a couple of to me boring spots. Uh, I don't know. It's to me. I would put it fifth. Uh, honestly, I think John Wesley Harding and Love and Theft are better records. I mean, I know that. Yeah, that's I don't put Love. And, I don't put Love and Theft anywhere near that high. Yeah, I, was <laughs> I like say it a lot. There, there's a lot I of like people. I like it a that, lot, but yeah, but, there's a lot of people that would accuse me of sacrilege for saying that. But yeah, uh, yeah so I would put this probably uh, this album fifth. And I, I understand where Dylan was at. You know, he, you know, the the pressure was was uh, getting on him as far as like you said, uh, he wanted to go his own way so to speak. And so there was, you know, he was getting that backlash from the folkies. Uh, you know, there was the pressure of, uh, of the London tour, uh, which mm -hmm. he did right after uh, this record. So he's in a kind of a pressure cooker. And uh, I, as a document uh, of that time and of his, of his saying, well, I'm going to ramp, I'm going to ramp things up even more. Uh, you know, you're trying to put me in a hole. Well, I'm going to go even more Dadaist. I'm going to go Dadaist times a thousand. Uh, and so I think there, there is some of that. There's a competitiveness that I think drives this record, which is one of the things that I get ultimately makes it great. I just wish it was shorter. That's all. Well, well you're in a 
distinct minority there, Chris. However, yeah, I've always um, been in a distinct minority. Uh, yeah, I, you know, that that's why I uh, co-host a podcast called the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We, we, we are the distinct minority, motherfucker. However, there is a bit more, there's a little bit more agreement with uh, regarding the next record and the yeah. third of the big three of 1966. Gee, you can guess who they are. Chris, yeah, go ahead. yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get much disagreement from basically anybody that uh, yeah. breathes and that's been yeah. born anytime between now and 1940 <laughs> yeah. about uh, this record. Uh, the Beatles Revolver. Uh, which, you know, obviously uh, is in the top five of most credible uh, lists of greatest albums ever made for a reason. It actually is one of the greatest albums uh, ever made. So let's talk about it. Uh, coming into 1966, the Beatles had become full-blown miracle workers. The wonderful Rubber Soul was released in December of 65 and signaled that this band had a lot more to say and more sophisticated ways to say it than anyone had ever imagined two years prior. So what came next? A leap that was 10 times even more imaginable than that. The result of a mixture of touring and media burnout, heaping helpings of LSD and cocaine. Let's not uh, underscore the or let's not uh, disregard the uh, influence of cocaine on McCartney sure. and an unencumbered ambition that told the band anything they touched would be more golden than King Midas uh, could ever approach. Reasonable arguments can be made over whether Revolver is the greatest rock album ever made but it is much less arguable to call it the art form's most adventurous record. It's obvious the Beatles had a lot of fun making the record, and this is the sound of swagger. Or as Rob Sheffield, uh, the author of a book uh, called Dreaming the Beatles, uh, go check it out, folks. It's a wonderful book. Uh, he puts it this way, quote, Rubber Soul had come as a surprise to the Beatles. Crashing it out in a few weeks for Christmas, the Beatles stumbled into a revelation of how far they could travel over the course of a full-length LP. Revolver marks the first time they set out to make a masterpiece on purpose. Arrogant bastards sure that any idea they try will turn out brilliantly. And this time, at least, they're right. End quote. Yes, Revolver is indeed a work of deliberate genius. Paul McCartney revisits the string quartet treatment of yesterday on Eleanor Rigby, except this time he strips away everything else leaving the strings to drive the drama of all those lonely people exclusively. The song doubles as pop majesty and as chamber music majesty. Meanwhile, George Harrison takes that sitar part from Norwegian wood this bird has flown and explodes it into a full raga workout, uh, com complete with a full raga band, uh, on Love You Too. The effect is absolutely mind-blowing. And then there's the amazing one-two punch that ends the record. McCartney hits first with the rousing soul workout, Got to Get You Into My Life, whipping out a horn section for the first time in the Beatles' history. It was a song good enough for the titans of soul, earth, wind, and fire to cover a decade later, which in a fascinating way translates to the earth, wind, and fire thing as much, if not more or better, than any earth, wind, and fire original. Now, John Lennon then follows that with the album's best Thank you song. for finally mentioning John Lennon. <laughs> oh, oh, would you stop? Oh, would if it you weren't stop? for John Lennon, John Lennon provides all the psychedelia in this record. All uh, of it. Yeah, I, I, I know. I know. Let me let, let me talk. Thank you very much. <laughs> so uh, Lennon then follows uh, with the album's best song. Tomorrow Never Knows. Uh, never changing from its predominant C chord. The song soars and soars and soars 
into a blatant tribute to the power of the psychedelic substance experience. Lennon lifts the song lyrics from a Timothy Leary treatise. In a fit of studio cleverness, McCartney inserts a loop of George Harrison's solo from the album opener Taxman, and he uh, and he inserts it backwards to create one of the wildest new solos in the rock canon. Now, uh, listening to Tomorrow Never Knows on repeat, even whilst sober, never gets old. Truly, I tell you, this is rock's greatest meditation. To me, what distinguishes Revolver from the rest of the Beatles catalog is its balance. I know you disagree with that, Arturo, but hear me out. Uh, was was the album the finest moment for both McCartney and Lennon? Maybe so. On one end, McCartney delivers one pop gem after another. Even the corniest stuff like Good Day Sunshine is magnificent. Plus, people tell me that here, there, and everywhere is really hard to play on guitar. On the other end, Lennon is, is totally in his feels and up to his elbows in that LSD throughout hitting tremendously emotional notes on Andrew Bird can sing, She Said, She Said, and I'm Only Sleeping. The two meet each other in the middle, the the two meaning McCartney and Lennon, meet each other in the middle on the ridiculously dreamy Yellow Submarine, co-crafting a surrealist sea shanty for Ringo Starr to croon in a charmingly dopey vocal performance. Ultimately, when we talk about a modern artist sounding Beatlesque, Revolver is the North Store for that illusion. The magic melodies, the hippie leanings, Paul's goofy cheeriness, the not-quite-sober harmonizing. It's all here. Revolver keeps on revolving as the decades pass, even as countless artists attempt to recycle its glory. That, I think, is its legacy. It's the monolith we can only touch. The transformation has already taken place. Enough said. Arturo? I think they would do better albums after this. Personally, I, I'm still I'm still a Sgt. Pepper's and White album uh, fanatic, and I still mm -hmm. think those are my two favorite Beatles albums. I, I can write a novel about how there's not a single wasted note in the White album, even the not so good songs. But anyway, back to um, back to Revolver. Yeah, I mean, listen, they, they were all they were firing on all cylinders here. Um, Harrison had finally come into his own a bit as a songwriter. Uh, the Indian Raga he does with Love You Too is great. I think he would improve it on Sgt. Pepper's, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, that, 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 yeah. That, that statement is true. Yeah. Um, Taxman is a great song. Um, I, I think he overestimated McCartney's input into Tomorrow Never Knows. Yeah, he provided that tape loop. But that, that whole song is John Lennon's brainchild. Yeah. And if you're going to give credit to anyone, you give credit to George Martin and his engineers. Yeah, and Jeff Emmerich. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, uh, they're, 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 they're the they're the real unsung stars of this album. Yeah, even as much as any of the four, and he's as much as Lennon and McCartney. Yeah, strange, um, strange but true. I I think that uh, Glenn Johns, his first day as a professional engineer was in was in the recording of Revolver uh, of, yeah. of of Tomorrow Never Knows. Can you imagine? Sure. Oh, wow. Yeah, imagine <laughs> that. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So I mean, this, I mean, this album has been written about a lot. It's been heard a lot. So there's not much more you more you can say. But uh I and I'll I'll said what I said before, you know. Yeah, as great as McCartney's stuff was, take Lennon away from this album. And this album is just a Baroque, it's a really, really good Baroque pop album, not unlike the left bank. <laughs> uh yeah, but, but that's it's a little but, bit better than that. I mean, there's some real depth here. I mean, Eleanor Rigby. Uh, it, it, you know, that's not oh, a great, who, 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 where Lennon helped with the lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying it's not a, well, I mean, but they helped each other. 
I mean, you know, again, you know, ha- after having seen the Peter Jackson movie uh, a, a year and a half ago, uh, it's pretty clear that they that they help doctor each other's uh, songs. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Lennon McCartney uh, songwriting credit actually uh, is worth more than than the mythology will, would uh, would make it. So I, I think that's yeah. a fair statement, you know. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but what I'm saying is like, you get stuff like for no one, Eleanor Rigby, uh, you know, there there's a depth to what uh, McCartney does. Uh, in some of his uh, songs uh, on this record. Now, granted, there is Good Day Sunshine uh, and and stuff like that, but uh, I really think that Paul is doing some really special stuff here. And in my opinion... So, Len- and so is John. And so is John. <laughs> uh, Lennon did not peak on this record. Right. He, did, he, he peaked on the White Album and Abbey Road. Uh, but I would say that McCartney probably did peak here. I mean, he has a couple of amazing things on Sergeant Peppers. I, I, I'll give Paul's peak to be this and Sergeant Peppers. Those are Paul's peaks. Yeah, I'll give you that. and so yeah. and so that's what I'm saying. It's it's not you know I know you say that this is Lennon's accomplishment. I think it's both of their accomplishments, and I, I don't think that there's a more balanced record uh, post '64. Let me let me just put a caveat to that. Uh, mm. po- post 1964, this is the most balanced uh, of the records. Uh, where in a way, in a way, because the white album is so fragmented and fractured and pulling apart at the same time, well, yeah, that's it's true. kind of a weird balance in itself, but that's <laughs> another discussion. Yeah, I was I was gonna say that's anti-balance. On this episode, we delved into the year 1966 in our second golden age of rock series. For our next episode, yours truly curmudgeons will get super geeky. As Chris, our resident Neil Youngologist, will perform a public service as he attempts to bring his, and by extension our, choice selections from Neil Young's archive series. Since 2009, Uncle Neil has been opening up his archives of endless recorded live performances and unreleased studio work. The sheer volume is overwhelming, and even the hardest of hardcore Neil fans have a hard time keeping up. The live performances have so far, the key words being so far, been released as 17 live albums classified as quote-unquote the performance series. The unreleased studio work has so far been released as two volumes, each multi-disc box sets, the first covering 1963 to 72, and the second covering 1972 to 1976. The third multi-disc box set is due to come out before the year ends. So what better time to discuss Uncle Neil and the gift that keeps on giving than now? There is a lot of music to go through here, but fear not. Chris knows his Neil Young, and the curmudgeons are here to make life easier for everyone and to let you know of only the 10 very best and choicest selections from all this live stuff and previously unreleased studio material. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you the best of the Neil Young Archive series. Now, folks, uh, we definitely we had called uh, those previous three albums again, Revolver, Blonde on Blonde and uh, Pet Sounds as a a triad, as a monolithic triad for 1966. However, uh, they were not the only game. Uh, I think that they were the main influences and everything from there trickled 
uh, down into that. And what it did is it gave uh, the artists, it transformed the industry so that it had freedom that it never had before. Uh, and one thing we can say is that uh, they did uh, introduce, even if the album was invented as the album, as we know, it was invented in 65. It was perfected in 66 and it became the standard that the album became a dominant uh, expression of its own in in 66. And so Arturo, uh, take us through uh, some of the other uh, fantastic and original records uh, that and albums uh, that that hit the street in 1966. Yeah. First, we go with the Beatles immediate rivals, the Rolling Stones and Aftermath. Probably the most annoying aspect of the British music industry during this time was their insistence on issuing UK and US versions of an album. These would differ significantly in both running order and track selection. Unfortunately, both the Beatles and Stones fell victim to this industry practice, one that the Beatles would kill dead the following year with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The Stones in particular would suffer from this since the UK version of this album doesn't have the titanic, apocalyptically rocking single Paint It Black, which topped the charts worldwide and is the leadoff track off the US version of Aftermath. This is the first truly great album in the Stones discography, and it's the first one to consist totally of Mick Jagger, Keith Richards originals. Always in the shadow of the Beatles at this time, the Jagger-Richards duo proved they could hold their own with some truly amazing songs. Guitarist Brian Jones's gift for arrangements shows itself in the driving sitar on Painted Black, but also with the haunting marimba on Under My Thumb, a great song that also serves as one of Jagger's nastiest put-downs of a woman that borders on misogyny. Mother's Little Helper, however, finds Jagger oddly sympathizing with a woman, in this case an older housewife who is barely keeping things together at home while dealing with an amphetamine addiction. That's one of the many things, or one of the things many of Jagger's detractors conveniently ignore. Um, he can be incredibly nasty toward women in his songs, but he can also be incredibly compassionate and tender, something he would show in later albums. Flight 505 is one of the earliest examples of the riff machine Keith Richards would become by the end of the decade. Uh, it's a great album that falls just short of perfection due to the 11-minute snooze fest, the, the blues jam going home that ends the U.S. version and ends side A of the U.K. version. Chris? Yeah, just one uh, note to make about the sort of the UK-US split. On the UK version, Mother's Little Helper is the opening track. Paint It Black is not on there. And I believe um, yeah. US, the US version, at least originally, Mother's Little Helper uh, was not. or Was um, not, yeah. Was not. Yeah. And uh, for what it's worth on Spotify specifically, they have the UK version. Uh, that with mother's, sucks. Yeah, with Mother's yeah. Little Helper and not Paint It Black. When I agree with you, because with you know the the U.S. version, it's a little bit better. I like Mother's Little Helper. It's 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 it's. A I, I like it too. Yeah, it's I, a I good think it both been on. You know, yeah, yeah. I was I was going to say if both of them were on there, then it would be that much better. Uh, yeah. You know, the one thing I will say is that uh, you really hear. Uh, well, one, uh, I think this is probably the best of the Andrew Luke Oldham produced records. Right. Uh, you know, he would leave. He would leave soon after this one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's between this and between the buttons. 
uh, from uh, right. the, the next year. I mean, it's, uh, you know, to sort of the pre Jimmy Miller era uh, albums. This is a really good one. But you hear the gestation of Beggar's Banquet and Little, Let It Bleed. Uh, a that, little bit. A, a little bit. bit. You, you start to hear this. Like, yeah, like I said, the gestation. This is the conception gestation phase. And so you get those country music leanings and, and blues leanings on stuff like Mother's Little Helper and Lady Jane and Don't You Bother Me, which right. may actually be my favorite song on the record. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a crucial giveaway here that uh, they were starting to, uh, as they were finding themselves as songwriters, that uh, that American uh, vernacular music was was one of the things that was affecting uh, their vocabulary. They weren't they weren't a straight pop band. They, they never really were a straight pop band, even though Under My Thumb is a perfect pop song. Uh, yeah. They never really did that. They so they didn't go full fledged uh, into uh, being the greatest white blues rock band of all time. Uh, yeah. But the, the hints are there, man. The hints are there. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have the Beatles, you have the Stones. And you have the Kinks. Yep. The Kinks, face-to-face. This is the first in a colossal run of masterpiece albums by this band. And it heralds the arrival of Ray Davies as master songwriter and chronicler of the British social class system. Hinted at the previous year with the excellent single, Well Respected Man. This is the first album where you get to hear Davies' patented character vignettes, character sketches all giving us tales of down-on-their-luck people navigating their everyday lives while providing biting and cutting social commentary. Sunny Afternoon, the biggest hit from the album, hitting number 14 in the U.S., number one in the U.K., and the top 10 throughout Europe, follows the downfall of a wealthy aristocrat from his from the, from the aristocrat's perspective. A House in the Country is one of the angriest songs in the band's discography, with Davies playing the character of a working-class yabo who envies the life of an upper-middle-class guy who lives not far from him. Holiday in Waikiki is one of the earliest songs ever written about gentrification, uh, detailing the environmental and cultural costs that the tourism industry can invoke. Musically, it's also a departure for the Kinks at the time, as Davies started to lead the band away from the R&B and heavy riff rock roots, their heavy riff rock roots, and more into traditional English music hall styles that would characterize the band's music later on. You can hear this on tracks like Dandy and Little Miss Queen of Darkness. Subtle psychedelia isn't too far away, though, as can be heard in the ominous darkness of Rainy Day in June, Fancy, and even the outro of Little Miss Queen of Darkness. It's a rich, eclectic, lyrically deep collection of songs that may be the Kinks' most underrated album. Chris? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I think to me, when when you... The fuzz box is definitely gone. Yeah. <laughs> and by, uh, you know, that, you know, the fuzz box lads that, that broke out with you really got me. Yeah. And in, uh, in 64, uh, that 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 is way gone by this. And uh, this is the beginning of what most of us, uh, mm. in, you know, uh, that count ourselves as rock and roll enthusiasts. Uh, when we yeah. think of the kinks, uh, yeah. this is what we think of Cle- cleverly rendered, masterfully arranged ditties, uh, flashing yeah. oodles of satirical wit, uh, you mm. know, as you've alluded uh, to. And uh, I love Sunny Afternoon, by the way. Yeah, that, that that is just to me, that is quintessential kinks. When I think of the kinks, that's the first song I hear in my head. Uh, mm-hmm. Wonderful little melody. It's got that it, it, it's almost funny. It, you know, it, it's it's almost uh, 
you know, the melody is is perfect, but it almost has a bop to it that that it, it's like him telling a a what like a a music hall joke. You know, yeah. it's like he's he's on like the British vaudeville uh, stage telling a joke, and so it's like that. Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody, you know, and sort of <laughs> that that whole thing. So it's it's just it's just wonderful. And yeah, I agree. I think that this probably is their most underrated record. I mean, the ones, the three or four that came after this are the ones that are celebrated, but face to face kind of gets left, uh, not kind of sort of in the dust. Doesn't, wouldn't you agree? Yes, it does. It it should be listed up there. I, I, I think it's a five star classic. It's on my list of the 500 greatest studio albums of all time, but that's coming much, 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 much later. Absolutely. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. Next. Um, Simon and Garfunkel with not one, but two albums. Uh, Memorable, even if they're not all great. Sounds of Silence and Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time both came out this year in 66. When Simon and Garfunkel hit it big with the epic single The Sound of Silence in the fall of 1965, they were rushed into the studio by their record label, Columbia, to make a full-length album in order to capitalize on the single's success. The resulting record, Sounds of Silence, was released in early 1966 and is a testament to how pressure can sometimes give an artist a sense of focus and have them create some of their best work. I love this album. Yeah, it is pretty good. The folk rock sound of The Sound of Silence was mostly retained here and augmented to some of Paul Simon's most moving and poetic songs. I Am a Rock, which was a massive single, hit number three on the Billboard singles chart, is an ode to loneliness that hits home with its subtle sense of despair. Loneliness is the overall arching theme on this album with songs, uh, with the songs Richard Corey, I Am a Rock, A Most Peculiar Man, uh, Richard Corey and A Most Peculiar Man, also presenting sad and in some cases suicidal characters. I think it's the duo's second best album after Bridge Over Troubled Water and proves that Bob Dylan and the Birds weren't the only ones who were doing killer folk rock at the time. The other album, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary and Time, though, found the duo taking much more time in the studio and the results are mixed. You have sentimental tripe like Cloudy and the Dangling Conversation, as well as Silly Dylan Pastiche with the ridiculously titled A Simple Desultory Philippic. <laughs> but <laughs> talk about pretentious. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you also have Homeward Bound, one yeah. of Simon's most rousing sing-along songs and a Absolutely. huge hit as well, going to number five in the pop singles chart. There's also the duo's achingly beautiful and definitive rendition of the old English folk song Scarborough Fair. And, of course, the 59th Street Bridge song, Feeling Groovy, one of the greatest I love New York songs ever written. Chris? Yeah, uh, the, the I, I think that uh, I would hope that uh, uh, that Paul Simon still pays uh, a referral fee or a tip to Bob Dylan uh, when, when, when he when he gets his checks. Just because uh, it's pretty clear that without Dylan, uh, Paul Simon and, and Art Garfunkel would not have broken out to the extent that they did. Uh, mm-hmm. They took advantage of the climate that was looking, yeah. oh, folk rock, more folk rock. And because remember, yeah. they did uh, Wednesday 3 a.m. Uh, yeah. a cu- couple years earlier to not much fanfare. That included the original version of Sound of Silence, which right. is just an acoustic guitar uh, uh, accompanied. Uh, it's the same vocal 
but not you know without the the keys and without the uh, without the drums um so you're right i mean there's just the sing-along quality of some of that stuff homeward bound is a personal favorite of mine uh, i grew up with i am a rock that was uh, one of my yeah. mob's favorite songs and you know obviously scarborough fair and just you know all, all of that stuff i mean simon just was a really really gifted songwriter garfunkel was a really really uh a gifted vocalist and you put them together and and you you get this and so uh, maybe it was a happy accident that they were trying to break out at the same time as Dylan was becoming huge. Uh, mm. But uh, thank you. Thank you, Bob. Uh, yeah, because, no because and, and thank you, Paul, because yeah. without you being so good, you know, I mean, Bob, Bob opened the door and you slammed your ass through it. So more, <laughs> more power to you. Right. All right. The next great album of 66 Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention with Freak Out. I mentioned how Bob Dylan was the first artist in the realm of popular music to release a double album. Who was the second? Frank Zappa. Yep. And he did so with his first album, Freak Out, which was released under the moniker of his band at the time, the Mothers of Invention. Zappa would go on to make better, and in my opinion, much better, albums as his career would progress. Uh, however, Freak Out finds Zappa at his most musically conventional and accessible, even with all the joke songs and social satire. Go cry on somebody else's shoulder, shoulder shits on sentimental doo-wop, made more poignant by the fact that Zappa himself was quite the fan of doo-wop. Um, you didn't try to call me and I ain't got no heart, satirize romantic folk rock, while motherly love provides dark comedy with the incestual undertones of smothering parental attention. But yeah. the band were called the Mothers of Invention for a reason, and there's plenty of new musical ground being broken here. Who Are the Brain Police has a creepy bass line that introduces a track that is one of the few times Zappa ever allowed himself to truly indulge in unsettling psychedelia, especially with the song's break in the middle. Trouble Every Day has the distinction of being one of the greatest songs in Zappa's catalog and is unusually one of his most straightforward. It's a raging blues rocker with some nifty guitar work that also serves as Zappa's thoughts on the Watts race riots that hit Los Angeles the previous year. What makes the song work is that it starts as a commentary on race relations Hint, Zappa is no fan of law enforcement and detests racism, but the song progresses into his general contempt for consumerist society and how somehow in America, everything becomes entertainment. In 2023, Zappa was right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Over 50 years later, almost 60, Zappa was prescient. Um, yes. the, the album ends with Help, I'm a Rock a song whose title satirizes Simon and Garfunkel's hit song, which is pretty funny, and, and the return of the son of Monster Magnet. Both of these songs are two sonic experiments, the former, Help, I'm a Rock, in repetition, and the latter, the return of the son of Monster Magnet, in the kind of music concrete that Zappa, Zappa would explore in the near future. The album is a near masterpiece that is an exemplary introduction to the long, rich discography of Frank Zappa. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the thing about... Uh freak out in this period for Zappa, you know, I like to look at if you can uh, basically sum up 
uh, Zappa's catalog and, and progression as an artist. Yeah. Uh, I think three words capture it maturity in reverse. Yeah. Uh, he, he kind of degenerated into titty jokes, uh, by the end of, uh, by the end of his road. But, but yeah. here, you know, the, the social commentary is, uh, is, is straight on the guitar playing is just awesome. I mean, yeah. this is, this is one of the better guitar records of, of that era. I mean, obviously it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily touch, uh, hot rats and, right. you know, and like the, you know, uncle meat and like the really great stuff, but yeah, yeah this is kind of, this is at Zappa's first taste of real freedom. It's like, you know, anybody that tried to put Zappa in a box, you know, you couldn't yeah. do it. He, he's a yeah. classically trained guy and he just, uh, it was hard to take him seriously. Well, and again, you can pretty much attribute this to, uh, Dylan and the Beatles and the psychedelic thing because it gave him because you know the thing about zappa was that he uh while he uh was a horribly notorious womanizer he detested drugs and so uh, thank god for the guys who were on drugs because it gave uh zappa the freedom to do his thing and make it sound like it was conventional right (laughs) for for the time for the times (laughs) and so you know in, in, in a way he he owes his career to the acid heads uh, yeah. so yeah, like you pretty much captured it for the rest of the record. It's, it's a really sharp, uh, satirical, uh, well put together and, uh, largely conventional, uh, slyly conventional, like he gets away with a lot, like you said, yeah. like motherly love and stuff like that. So, uh, good stuff. And, uh, again, thank you, Bob. And more especially, thank you, Acid. <laughs> for this yes yeah now i'm gonna throw you a curveball chris i did not include this in our episode outline okay the 13th floor elevators <laughs> the psychedelic sounds of the 13th floor elevators rocky baby coming, rocky yes coming from austin texas this band of genuinely legitimately crazy acid heads are one of the few bands of this era to be considered precursors to punk rock. They may not have been punk in idealism, but they certainly were in attitude and spirit. Their music itself was necessary was a uh, was not necessarily psychedelic. It was more revved up garage and folk rock. But my, oh my, were their lyrics ever so psychedelic. Uh, Tommy Hall, who on stage played an amplified jug, provided most of the words that were sung uh, in the high-pitched wail by one Rocky Erickson, the band's leader and direction mover. The single, You're Gonna Miss Me, was a big regional hit, but only went as far as number 55 on the national singles chart. Yet... That song is not indicative of the high-octane rock and roll and acid-fried lyrics contained in this album. Check out Reverberation. The song has one of the creepiest, eeriest guitar riffs of the era, and it does its damn best to convey an acid trip in words. Try listening to Kingdom of Heaven and not feel like you're being levitated by its trippy majesty. It's one of the best albums of 1966 and one of the best of all time. Chris? Yeah, it's uh, one one thing I say about the 13 uh, floor elevators. It's kind of like I've made this comment about uh, when I talk about Grateful or the Grateful Dead's Anthem of the Sun is that, (laughs) uh, I mean, picture a shattered uh, stained glass church window. And, you know, some pieces are more beautiful 
and and more uh, charming than the others. And so what it is, is it's an assembled uh, smattering of pieces. But when you put them together, some sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's all adventurous. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, it the, the whole the pile becomes the whole. You know, it's not it's not the glass. You know, it's not the Virgin Mary in glass. It's just. Yeah. You know, it's red. It's blue. It's yellow. It's green. It's orange. And it sparkles in the sun. Uh, <laughs> and so it's just it's an album of pieces. And uh, at times it's really beautiful. It's oddly beautiful. In, yeah. In, in many in many respects. And so uh, God bless Rocky. And God bless the others for like, you know, legitimately uh, uh, there were, a, I guess you could say that there's a subgenre of meltdown bands. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is one of the foremost and finest. Unlike the beach boys, they never made it big. Nope. <laughs> nope. Yeah. All right. The last full length album we'll mention here, the monks black monk time. Now we talked about this album in detail, in one of our vault segments from, I think two years ago. Yeah. But from this, a long time but this, ago. Yeah. This album should be mentioned again. Four American soldiers stationed in Germany in the mid 1960s, decide to form a band, dress up as Catholic monks on stage for visual effect. And I suppose subversive humor and bash out an aggressive style, ruthless garage rock that while it didn't sell any records at the time, proved to be a huge under the radar underground influence on legions of garage rock and punk bands in the future. None other than Jack White himself has called this one of his all-time favorite albums and a big influence on the White Stripes. And you can certainly hear it in the pounding intensity of songs like Complication and the wonderfully titled I Hate You. <laughs> uh, th this was punk when the word punk just meant prison slang for a guy who took it up the ass. Chris? Yeah, pretty much. Uh Proto Garage. Yeah. This, is, this is definitely Proto Garage. It's a fun record. It's a wacky record. Uh, it's a record that needs to be heard to be believed. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's it's that much fun. And uh, it's, you know, for four guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there backstory is that they're four guys, they're four American guys who were stationed in the army? Yes. That, uh, yeah. And so this was kind of their uh, their way of not going insane under all the, the regimenting of, of, of military life. And so yeah. uh, there, there you go. So uh, God bless the United States Army, for, without which we would not get the monks. Well, the monks, I believe. OK, hold on a second, Chris. You mentioned that there were four guys. There were five guys. Sorry, five guys. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. There were five guys. And so, yeah, they um, again, you know, the, 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 the military blues comes out as proto garage, baby. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. All right, so now we did the albums. Now we got to go into. Now we're getting to the deep psychedelia. Now these are the songs of nineteen rock singles of '66 that were truly psychedelic. Chris, you're yeah, gonna go, go, go through them for us. Yeah, so let's let's kind of do a little bit of lightning round with these. Uh, you know, this was kind of the uh, you know '65 kind of laid the groundwork, but these this you know where the garage came in in '65. This is where the garage plus acid comes in, and so you get yeah. some truly uh, majestic and weird stuff uh, going on here. And somehow most of this, or if all of this, either became hits or became cult favorites. Uh, go figure. So yeah. here we go. The birds eight miles high. Mm. 
Now, if anyone in history was ever qualified to write and sing a song called Eight Miles High, it was David Crosby. <laughs> uh, here's a guy that, uh, you know, that the birds had in the year prior had uh, really innovated and practically invented folk rock, uh, you know, and uh, with uh, Turn, Turn, Turn and uh, some of uh, that stuff. Well, here they grow even more adventurous and uh, even more sort of mind bending with what they were doing. Uh, this is, uh, I believe, or is uh, the best of the Roger McGuinn 12 string guitar work. Uh, just really, really exciting uh, riff that, that that just keeps looking at the heavens. And it's just kind of this, it's this aggressive, uh, just crunchy, uh, gnarly music track with this really sort of soft, hummable uh, melody. There's it's just, it's a striking juxtaposition. And, you know, it's, it's so it's like this ugliness uh, juxtaposed with this prettiness and the prettiness obscures some some truly like psychedelic and must have been influenced by drugs lyrics. Uh, I mean, come on, we have a line round the squares huddled in storms, some laughing, some just shapeless forms. <laughs> I mean, is he talking about corny people? Is he talking about actually geometric shapes? Doesn't matter. Sure. Yeah, you check out the lyrics to the song Fifth Dimension. That's even more acid fried. Yeah, exactly. The logic uh, here really washes away and pure, majestic, ever-soaring wild beauty predominates. Arturo, yeah. what say you about Eight Miles High? Oh, I think it's their the, the Birds' single greatest song. It's their greatest song ever of any version of the band, whether it's the original version, whether it's the, the country version of Sweetheart of the Rodeo later with Graham Parsons, whether it's 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 the the country rock, folk rock, kind of folk rock, but like a, the 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 ones they the the ver the iteration of the band later in 1969 and 70, in which Roger McGuinn was the only original member. Um it's their single best song. It's basically Ravi Shankar meets john coltrane yep. backed up by a tripped out acid fried rock and roll band yep <laughs> that, that that's actually not a bad description especially the ravi shankar part go figure yeah. so uh moving on uh the love and spoonful summer in the city uh this was another band uh kind of like zappa or artists that benefited from the ridiculousness of what was coming out of other people's acid or, or yeah. other or other people's drug experiences. But, but, but th these guys were genuine folk musicians, though. Yeah, these guys are they're folk musicians from New York City. They are uh, they're, they're they're Greenwich Village born, uh, tried and true. And uh, here what they do is they're able to experiment uh, with the sound and play with reverb, play with electric piano. You know, play with that mood, this kind of spooky, uh, kind of drugged out, uh, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in a hallway mood. Uh, but really, it's a song about, hey, we're, we're melting in the city by day and partying by night. Uh, yeah. there's, a, there's a certain, uh, you know, their stuff was really, believe it or not, they had a, a better chart year in 1966 than the Beatles. Uh, hmm. They had more top 10 hits. And wow. so they, they were the hottest band, the American band of 1966 if you go by the charts uh amazingly huh. amazingly enough it was were, all downhill after that year though for well, well yeah of course it was i mean yeah they 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 peaked all at once uh they were usually masters of acoustic strumming and they had a certain jolly innocence and like i said they changed it up here and they really went uh they really went to the fun house with how mm. they with how they arranged uh this song and uh very beach boys influenced yeah very very beach boys influenced and uh it really kind of 
pre, I guess you, it gives a good preview to the full blown flower power outbreak that brought us sure. the summer of love the next year. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a good preview of, of, of the kind of stuff we got in 67. Right. Yeah. All right. So the next, um, uh, the next one, uh, this is one of my all time favorite songs. Yeah. What is it, Chris? Donovan, Donovan Sunshine Superman. Yeah, Donovan Sunshine Superman, which uh, wonderfully, sublimely ridiculous. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, like I said, wonderful melody. Uh, it's got, uh, you know, the, the instrumentation with the harpsichord, you know, kind of mi mixing and matching like that, that opening with the harpsichord uh, underneath that, that sort of that weird, wild uh, guitar lick, which yeah. is kind of like warbling guitar lick that comes out of nowhere. And then from there, it's just it's just this little kind of almost tap dancing uh, folk ditty. Uh, mm. I mean, you can just see I, I just picture Donovan Leach, like, you know, sitting on like uh, a, a pile of rubble just with a big smile on his goofy smile on his face, holding a flower in one <laughs> in one hand or, or having a flower in his in, in his ear and just kind of, <laughs> you know, just sort of. Well, that's basically just, what he was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, essentially, but you know, he just uh, he just gets like truly ridiculous. I mean, he basically he he's a Scotsman, and so he sounds Scottish, and he croons earnestly and nonsensically uh, on this song. Uh, pretty much the lyric of 1966: "Quote Superman or Green Lantern ain't got a nothing on me. I can make like a turtle and die for your pearls in the sea. Yeah, and you 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 can just sit there thinking on your velvet throne." about all the rainbows that you can have uh, for your own when you've made up your mind forever to be mine i'll pick up your hand and slowly blow your little mind that's 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 <laughs> yeah. <some> creepy shit <laughs> yeah well you know i mean if someone if someone were to ask a question what did the 1960s sound like they sounded like this song yeah yeah pretty pretty much uh both both sides of it there's there's the folk rock revolution of the early half and then yeah. the then the the, uh, the the way too much drugs uh, second half, uh, <laughs> you know, and so this is the perfect embodiment of, of, of both. Uh, any other thoughts on this, Arturo? I just gave you my thoughts, man. It, it's the sound of the '60s. Time yeah. Time Magazine presents their box. Remember those in the in the 1990s? We yeah. had those TV infomercials. Yeah. Time Magazine presents the 1960s. It'd be like a four CD box set of all yeah. these songs. This uh -huh. song would be on there. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, that and and probably Atlantis too, which yeah, is, the which, other one, yeah. which is just as lysergic, uh, <laughs> not as good, but just as lysergic. Yeah. Uh, speaking yeah, of which, spe speaking of drugs, <laughs> yeah, we move on. Uh, the Butterfield Blues Band's East West. Uh, mm -hmm. It's less well known than the previous three songs, all of which were huge hits, but it's definitely just as adventurous. Uh, in which the most reverend of blues rock bands turns on the jazz fusion switch. Uh, yeah. Paul Butterfield, for those of who don't know, Paul Butterfield was an American blues harp player uh, renowned for testing the boundaries of the blues with rock and jazz influences. I mean, most of his stuff, like I said, he he was a great coverer of of the Mississippi guys, like, you know, kind of uh, you know, ramp them up. He was a he was a Californian. I believe he's from the Bay. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, you know, would sort of like just ramp, you know, ramped up traditional blues. But here on East West, we find him and his bandmates at their most mystical. It is a mighty 13-minute-long jam that owes as much to Middle Eastern folk and Latin jazz as it does <laughs> to as it does to Muddy Waters or Willie Dixon. Uh, the song is permeated by nasty guitar and harmonica solos spread out like mescaline-tinged butter over yeah. a lovely bed of gentle bass grooves augmented by electric piano. 
Uh, this was an instrumental to be whacked out of your mind too at a happening party, man. Uh, it's worth <laughs> noting. It, it's definitely worth noting that this effort predates both the Grateful Dead and Santana's similarly yep. whacked out explorations by a couple of years, uh, yeah. making it somewhat revolutionary. Wouldn't you agree, Arthur? Arturo? Yeah. And Paul Butterfield played lead guitar on Tombstone Blues from Bob Dylan's Highway 61 album. That I did not know. Uh, yeah. You know, I knew that uh, he had a couple other guys on that, but uh, but but Butterfield was he he's a really talented guy, man. He 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 lived the rock and roll. I mean, he died of a drug overdose in his mid forties, yeah. uh, in in the seventies uh, or in the eighties, I believe. But uh, yeah, he lived it and he sounded it, and uh, this is uh, as as trippy as it got. Right. Although the next song was even trippier than that. Uh, <laughs> yeah we're talking about the dovers the third eye uh, right this song effectively was sock hop for druggies yeah and it was garage rock of the highest order uh these guys were from santa barbara california mm-hmm. and they took a simple danceable groovy groove and bashed the hell out of it it's kind of like a link it's almost like link ray surf rock like done by guys who couldn't play uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in some strange ways <laughs> and then it has the uh the uh, wonderfully uh wonderfully uh let's say say transcendental uh lsd lyric unlocked <laughs> by the key and now i am free whoa dude yeah. i don't think yeah. that the key was associated with a wooden door uh, <laughs> it's strange but true the uh, band's original name was the vandells not to <laughs> be uh confused with the vandellas uh, <laughs> I, I, I assure you, there was no Martha dancing in the streets in this group's efforts. Arturo? Mar- Mar- dancing in the streets on acid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you know, bashed out groovy groove, baby, bashed out groovy groove. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Uh, next, uh, speaking of groovy grooves and uh, uh, and acid, the seeds, trip maker, G, mm. subtle. Yeah, yeah. Real, real subtle. <laughs> uh, another another fine garage band from Southern California. Th- th- this is a year all these bands were getting away from their overt drug references in their songs. By the way, in '66, they really were. Yeah, they were starting to, but they, uh, but but some of them still made the cut. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and so here's a, a man. Here, this is this is really an ode to the man of the hour in 1966, the chemist who was serving up the liquid love. <laughs> or in the words of the Seeds uh, frontman Sky Saxon, the dude who was, quote, taking orange, green, and white crystallized powders, mixing in the colors of colorized vials. Uh, and so what you really get, it's... <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah. he's basically describing the drug dealer who's giving acid to people. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, he's out, he's outing his dealer. That's not cool, man. <laughs> he's, getting, he's, he, he's, getting, he's getting his homeboy arrested. Uh, but so what you really have, so there's fuzzy bass, there's groove spiked electric piano, and there's this wild razor wire guitar soloing. Uh, it's more musical than the Dovers, but it's, it, but it's messier in terms of how it was played. Uh, here was an unhinged anthem for unhinged times. Uh, Arturo, any thoughts? I like this song more than the third eye, to be honest with you. Yeah. This song, this song kind of rocks in its own way. It really does. No, it does. It's unhinged. I mean, and that's the best thing about it. Yeah. My yeah, kind absolutely. of my kind of acid soaked punk. Speaking of acid soaked punk, yeah. Speaking of acid soaked punk, it doesn't get any. Uh, uh, you know, we how how do you outdo a song called Trip Maker by call, <laughs> by doing a song called Psychotic Reaction? Uh, this is from a band called The Count Five. 
Uh, they uh, were a Bay Area. They're from San Jose. Uh, this was Chuggalug blues inspired uh, bass lines with swirling harmonica in the crevices of the mix with runaway guitar solos. Uh, that was and and everything was whacked out as the song title suggests. Uh, this was bluesier than Butterfield and more unhinged than even the seats. Yeah. Uh, this was presented as a disturbing musical rendition of lunatic agony over romantic rejection. Amazingly, <laughs> this messy affair actually peaked at number five on the Billboard yeah. one, Hot 100 in October of 1966. Uh, this this has to be like one of the craziest, if not the single craziest uh, top 10 hit of all time. If yeah, you think about no, it, it is. It, it's it's. Yeah, I I didn't I, until we did this episode. I never knew because that this song was on the Nuggets box set. Yep. And I thought it was just one of many other, you know, obscure mid-60s garage rock songs. Nope. Major major hit. <laughs> major hit. <laughs> yeah, major hit. Well, yeah, well, ma major hits turned into major hit. Yeah, I'll tell you, major hits of much acid. Yeah. This is how this guy dealt with getting dumped. Oh, yeah. what a loser. Next song, The Yardbirds Turn Into Earth. The band that introduced the world to guitarists Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page go decidedly on blues guitar here on this lovely slice of headphone skullfuckery. Yeah. Uh, the simple drum beat and haunting vocal moans dominate the right ear. Meanwhile, Keith Ralph's earnest lead vocal massages the left ear. Uh, this sounds like a gay romp through the elven forests, but is actually a recounting of depression as the world Ralph once knew drifts away. Uh, mm. This is quite this is quite something. It's, uh, you know, for them, you know, I don't think that either Beck or Page plays on this song. And if they do, I'm, Beck not does, quite there. I think. Yeah, yeah Beck does. The, but there's yeah. but the guitar is not up front and center. It's it's no. it's maybe mixed in there, but it's yeah. This was about as uh, a, a much of a curveball as you got from the Yardbirds. Yeah, I mean, but Jeff Beck during this time was kind of like the the musical direction leader of the Yardbirds at this time. Um, Jimmy Page would join the band shortly afterward, but yeah. uh, I mean, when we talk about the Yardbirds, I mean, Clapton became you know superstar. Page became you know superstar with Led Zeppelin. Jeff Beck was like the third guy of the of the Yardbirds yeah. uh, hierarchy of guitarists, and what gets forgotten is how much of an experimentalist he was. Yeah, um, he was he was he was nowhere near as formal and as traditional as Clapton, and Page was an experimentalist, as we would see with Led Zeppelin. But Page always seemed to be grounded a little bit, no matter how far off he went into. Um, his stylistic adventures with Led Zeppelin. Jeff Beck was always the one, and you can see it, you can hear it in his Yardbirds ears. He would truly go off the rails, and he had no problem like not being, you know, the not having the guitar front and center. That wasn't a you know, he. He didn't have that kind of an ego, which is really interesting for a guy who's supposedly a virtuoso guitar player. Yeah, and it's not a coincidence that Nigel Tufnell from Spinal Tap is based on Jeff Beck. <laughs> uh, because uh, you know Jeff Beck may uh, have approached Stonehenge if uh, <laughs> if if he was allowed to uh, for sure. So yeah, in, in, interesting stuff. Uh, and again, you know, listening to it on headphones is an experience. It's actually kind of annoying. <laughs> it, it's like evenly split between the you know, uh, the the, voc the the main vocals stay on the right, and the backup uh, vocals and the, uh, the the vocal stylings that are in the the grooves stay Dude, on the right. Dude, that's mono. That's mono recording. That's what it was like back then. 
yeah it's 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 pretty yeah it's like oh. yep it is mono recording so <laughs> yeah. anyway and then one final song to mention uh the standells mm. dirty water mm. uh which was just a straightforward garage blues uh, uh ditty uh about the charles river and their love for their native boston massachusetts they love that dirty water i suppose there's probably an acid reference in there somewhere uh <laughs> you know they did love that dirty water uh now uh I bring this up because back then it was a modest hit. I think it was like in the 25 or something like that right. on, uh, on the billboard charts back then, but it somehow became an anthem that accompanied the, uh, the championship rise of the Boston Red Sox, uh, mm. almost 20 years ago. Uh, so kind of a, a, a strange, uh, psychedelic song to be associated with a baseball team full of like, you know, macho dorks. <laughs> you know, so yeah it, it's a song that never really did it for me that much yeah i i agree it, it, it should be listed in 1966 garage rock songs but i always thought it was kind of a corny guitar riff you know yeah oh i know dun, 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 dun. yeah I was, yeah. I, yeah i was gonna yeah. say it, it it sounds like it came off a tv show i understand that but it, <laughs> it but it's a neat little song it's a neat yeah. little ditty uh, and definitely worth a mention so there you go. Anyway, so now we're 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 coming out of the heavens and we're coming down to earth at the end of 1966 and we got to give a mention to some earthy music. And earthy yeah. music coming in the form of some of the all-time great classic singles that came from both the Motown in Detroit and the Stax in Memphis record labels that were just pioneering uh, record labels providing us. Basically they were the foundational black American music labels of R and B and soul of the 1960s. Yeah. yeah. Obviously without Motown and Stax, we don't get black music as we know it. Uh, they, they, they really just sort of drove that along with chess and King. Uh, you know, they yeah. were sort of the the the, uh, the most important of the black labels. Uh, let's not commit an egregious oversight uh, as we approach the end of this episode. Black musicians had an awesome 1966, too. Yeah, uh, it wasn't it wasn't just a white phenomenon. Uh, right. We spoke quite a bit about Motown in this second golden age of rock series episode on 1964 and about how founder Barry Gordy established the scrappy Detroit label in the late 50s and built it into an unstoppable assembly line of hit songwriting and hit songmaking. Uh, the label's output of chart toppers was awesome for years, but the brilliance perhaps reached its peak in 1966. Check this out. The Temptations Get Ready. Mm. The Temptations Ain't Too Proud to Beg. The Spinner's Truly Yours. Stevie Wonder's Nothing's Too Good for My Baby, and also a Stevie Wonder cover of Blowing in the Wind, uh, mm -hmm. which is pretty wild. Jimmy Ruffin's What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, one of the great uh, soul ballads of all time. Uh, the Supremes, You Cannot Hurt You. Well, it's not cannot. You Can't Hurry Love. Yeah. Uh, which right. is an amazing song. You Can't song. Hurry Love. Yeah. And it was a number one song that year. Yeah. Uh, Marvin Gaye's Little Darling, I Need You, uh, which is a tremendous song. Uh, the Four Tops, Reach Out, I'll Be There, which is also a number one song that year. And then The Supremes, the other number one song from that year, You Keep Me Hanging On, which right. is about as uh, dramatic uh, a song as it gets. The Four Tops, Standing in the Shadows of Love. Mm. And uh, The Temptations, Beauty is Only Skin Deep. Yeah, great song. Uh, yeah, that's that's a heck of a that's a heck of a roll call right there. 
Now, that is a pop heaven and a pop nirvana. Hell, that is a pop wet dream of epic proportions. Right. Uh, Gordy's machine was at its most well-oiled here. The songwriting's depth and scope was never better than it was in 1966. Uh, they had, for what it's worth, they had more hits uh, yeah. in 64, but the, okay. the the output here is just better. I mean, yeah. this, is just, this is just majesty personified. Uh, yeah. Even the minor output actually is pretty amazing. Uh, there's a, a series of uh, Motown singles collections that uh, tracks each year uh, of the seven of the sixties. And so, you know, check out volume six of that. You can find that on the, uh, uh, on all the streaming sites and on YouTube. Uh, so from that, check out the Isley brothers version of I hear a symphony, which was Mm -hmm. made famous by the Supremes, uh, Mm -hmm. Ronald Isley and his brothers take one in the Supremes hand was a bubblegum pop tune and they turn it into operatic heart aching soul. Uh, you know, in the in the sort of that Isley Brothers style, you know, like, man, they really they got the balls uh, right. of the soul of, of that song. Right. So uh, anyway, that was the established Kings year. Now let's talk about Stax and Sister yeah. Label Volt, uh, which broke out into the big time in 66. Uh, Stax and like I said, it's Sister Label Volt effectively put Memphis R&B on the map uh, with its nasty yeah. blend of blues and balladry embodied most especially by house band Booker T and the MGs and Otis Redding, undoubtedly one of the greatest singers who ever lived. Uh, After several years of regional success, uh, defined by singles, mostly from uh, singles by Rufus Thomas on Stax and by Otis Redding on Volt, the label struck a distribution deal with Atlantic Records late in 1965, setting up a truly magnificent 1966 of output and prominence. Now, the stack, the stacks volt rise coincided with the rising influence of a young Isaac Hayes on the label songwriting and scorching yet tuneful musical style. The Atlantic uh, connection uh, was also fruitful in that it matched uh, Stax's genius guitarist and songwriter Steve Cropper with Atlantic's wildly talented singer Wilson Pickett, which which generated uh, hits such as In the Midnight Hour, which is an amazing song. He also that year Wilson also had Mustang Sally yep. came out that year and Land of a Thousand Dances yep. that same year. Nah, yep. nah, 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 nah. Yep. That, that that same year. Yeah. Additionally, 66 also found Stax pumping out Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood, yep. which features a famous and instantly recognizable opening horn riff. Bah, bah, yeah. bah. Right. So that song became a number one R&B hit that year and reached number 28 on the pop charts. And Redding himself scored a major hit with the terrific ballad "Try a Little Tenderness." Right, and so that's that's some damn good that's some damn good stuff right there. So now, oh, and, and there's one other Atlantic artist who had probably the biggest hit, one if not the biggest hit out of them all. And who's that? Percy Sledge. Oh, when yes. A man loves a woman. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Some so some some somehow I overlooked Percy Sledge. Uh, thank you, fact checking, cuz. Uh, <laughs> So now the Stax Volt phenomenon peaked two years later in 1968. Right. And Otis Redding's posthumous single Sitting on the Dock of the Bay reached the top of the Billboard charts, Mm -hmm. ranking as the number four overall single of that year. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, tensions and ongoing contractual disputes between the leadership of of Atlantic and Stax led to a dissolution of that relationship, uh, you know, the, uh, the distribution relationship in 1968 which left uh, Stax to sort of duke it out as an independent label. Uh, for a couple years uh, that that worked, uh, they, 
it was a time that made stars out of Isaac Hayes with Hot Buttered Soul in 1969. And then also the Staples Singers, who were yeah, uh, who were right. a gospel act that made the crossover into uh, mainstream pop. And there were several others as well. Yet by 1975, Stax was broke and declared bankruptcy, ending its run. Even mm-hmm. so, we will always have 1966 when the influences of Redding, Hayes, Proper, Duck Dunn, and others became part of the DNA of everything black and R&B that followed. The influence was immeasurable. Arturo? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, one thing also about 1966 uh, in R&B and soul in general, you know, not not just you know Motown and Stax, but I mean, they were the majority of it, really, yeah. and Atlantic, who were associated with uh, Stax. But like when we think of R&B and soul, we think of the pervasive influence of funk and then later, you know, much later in this case, hip hop. You know, yeah. so it's it, it's interesting to hear pre nineteen sixty seven R and basically pre James Brown, <laughs> pre uh, um, pre Cold Sweat R and B soul music, and and how different it is to what R and B sounds like now. Oh, absolutely! You know, it's a very different beast. It's almost a different complete genre of music. You know oh, what yeah. constitutes R and B now just is not really rhythm and blues. It's something completely different, even yeah. though it's taken the R and B moniker. Much, yeah. like, much like much like how indie rock. There's nothing independent label about indie rock now, and right. there's nothing rock about most of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, and if you look at it, I mean, a lot of the melodies and a lot of the the singing styles uh, that permeated this R and B, especially this year. Uh, goes back to the church. It goes back Gospel, to the yeah. yeah. It goes back to the hills of uh, of Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama. I mean, it yeah. goes uh, you know it goes back to you know country western. Hell, it goes back to the pop standards uh, of sure. the 30s and 40s. I mean, it's sure. uh, it it's a really rich history. And you know, at this yeah. point, uh, you know, you still had uh, boogie woogie influences, and you, you it was more like soul is basically like you know let's take like white uh let's like white bubblegum pop and let's let's black the hell out of it yeah uh is is really what's going on and that's that's what that's really the legacy of Stax Volt is right. uh, m- more than Motown Motown had its own kind of style and you know they had you know the Smokey Robinsons and the Whitfields but you know down there uh they really uh they really brought out the drama <laughs> yeah. Well, they were grittier. Yeah. Their, their, their brand yeah. of soul was grittier than Motown. So it yeah, was, it, it, it was more Southern fried, you know? Yeah, it was grittier, but it was more, it was even more soulful. It went down into the bowels yeah. of, of, uh, of your emotions and, and yeah. what you were experiencing. And so, right. yeah, they, they really, they really uh, achieved uh, quite a lot. And so, uh, yeah, stacks, we all, we all a great deal too, for sure. As we do at the end of these episodes, uh, we encourage everyone to join the uh, Facebook curmudgeonly community. Uh, we have a page and we have a site up there on Facebook where uh, we engage in uh, lively discussions. Uh, these days, the dominant thread is Arturo's lists uh, by year of the greatest studio albums. I believe 1993 is coming down the pike here pretty soon. Yeah, he's coming down maybe maybe next week or so. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, but anyway, join us there at facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeon rock. Also, if you have anything to say, if you have a similar enthusiasm for the triad of albums that we spoke about, 
earlier in this record, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we have a presence on Twitter or X or whatever the hell Elon Musk uh, wants to call it or whichever uh, bad guys he wants to invite to use it next. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we dabble in Spotify and uh, we'll probably make a playlist here because this is a year that deserves it. So 